You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Okay, let's pray as we get into 1 Kings chapter 11. Lord, we come to your word, your living word that is powerful, that is active, Lord, that cuts to the very heart of the matter and to the very heart of us. And we come to it, Lord, with expectancy and with openness, Lord, asking that you would speak to us and shape us through your word during this time. Lord, we ask that we would be receptive to your word and that we would be responsive as you speak. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me ask you this. How many of you guys have ever had this experience where you got your hopes up for something, right? You you got your hopes up for something. You're really excited about it. You you really built up this expectancy for this thing. And then you got the thing that you had built your hope up about, and it wasn't quite as good as you expected it would be. We have a word for that. We say that something is underwhelming, right? When you get your hopes up, then you get it. And it's not quite as fulfilling or as exciting as you thought it would be or you expected that it would be. Well, personally, you know, for me, I I like to set goals. I'm like a a goal setter. I I don't even know how to function if I don't have goals. So I'm always setting goals. And I like to meet those goals. And personally, I love finishing things. So more than starting new things, I don't really like to start new things. I like to finish the things that I've started and check them off my list. It gives me a, a lot of satisfaction to do that. But one thing I've learned is this, that no matter how good it feels to accomplish things and to have certain experiences, it's always a little bit disappointing. Every time, it's always a little bit disappointing. It never feels quite as good as you thought that it was going to feel to get that experience, to to accomplish that thing. And there's actually a term for this. The researchers call it the arrival fallacy, the arrival fallacy. And basically it says this, all of us are searching for and looking for certain things in life. And what we tend to do is we have this voice in our heads that says this, when I have that, when I reach that stage in life, when I accomplish this, then I will be happy and content or fulfilled. But, but here's what happens. When you get that thing, when you reach that stage in life, when you get there, it's never as fulfilling as you expected it would be or thought that it was going to be. And there's been a lot of research done on this topic. And what the research shows is that actually many times when people accomplish a big goal or they get something that they've wanted for a long time, rather than feeling great about it, rather than feeling a sense of elation and fulfillment, most people actually experience a form of depression, right? When you get that thing you've been working for or wanting for a really long time. For example, I found this article on uh, Inc.com, a business magazine, and it was titled, You Might Feel Empty After Reaching a Goal. And here's what they said in the article. They said, surprisingly, success often has the effect of putting you down in the emotional dumps, which is surprising, right? But why is that? Well, the Bible actually tells us why. It tells us this, that because in all of our pursuits, in all of your pursuits, what you are ultimately looking for is something which cannot be found in the things of this earth. You're looking for something that cannot be found here in this world. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, if I find in myself desires for which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. 
Well, today, as we continue our study through 2 Kings, we're going to be looking at a man named Joash. And Joash seemed to be the hope of the nation of Judah. And Joash also had somebody in his life whom he looked to and who he relied upon. But you know what we're going to see as we study this story? Here's what we're going to see. And this is our sentence, our theme sentence for today. Placing your hope in people or things will ultimately disappoint. But the hope of the gospel is the promise of a kingdom which will satisfy the deepest longing of your soul. Every week I give you a sentence. That's our sentence for this week. And that functions as our outline for how we study this passage. And it kind of sums up what we're going to be talking about today. So I'd encourage you, write that down, memorize it, put it in your notes, take a photo of it, whatever you got to do to get that in your mind, because that is what this passage is teaching us. So the title of today's message is The Seed of the Kingdom, The Seed of the Kingdom. And we're going to take that sentence and we're going to break it down as we study this passage. So let's begin by talking about this. Placing your hope in people or things. That's the first thing we see in this chapter. 2 Kings chapter 11 begins with these words. Now when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed the royal family. Now what's going on here? Let me bring you up to speed. Ahaziah was the king of Judah. Now, you might remember that at this time, Israel, the nation of Israel, is divided into two kingdoms. You had the kingdom of Israel in the north and the kingdom of Judah in the south. They had different kings. They had different dynasties ruling over those kingdoms. Now, in our study last week, we saw a guy named Jehu. And Jehu assassinated a whole bunch of people. You remember the story. It was like the Terminator, right? Like just people getting assassinated left and right. Well, one of the people he assassinated was Ahaziah. Ahaziah was the king of the southern kingdom of Judah. So he was assassinated by Jehu back in chapter 9. Well, since the king of Judah has been assassinated, what happens when a king dies? Well, the next person in line for the throne takes the, the throne, right? They inherit the throne. So the question is, who will take the throne? Who's the next in line of the descendants of Ahaziah who will take the throne? But here's what happens. In chapter 1, verse 1, we read that King Ahaziah's mother, whose name is Athaliah, when she heard that her son had been killed, she went, and what did she do? She killed the entire royal family of Judah. Now, understand, who are these people who she killed? Remember, she's the mother of the king. That means that the people she killed are her own family members. They're her own relatives. They're her own children and her own grandchildren. Now, you know, killing your children and grandchildren is not something that grandmothers usually do, right? That's not what they usually do. They're usually like knitting and quilting, not murdering their grandchildren, right? But why would, why would a grandmother just go and, you know, kill all her children and grandchildren? Here's why. Because Athaliah wanted to seize power for herself. She wanted to take control of Judah and take the throne of Judah. And, and so she kills her own children and her own grandchildren so that she could sit on the throne of Judah as queen. Now look what it says in chapter 11, verse 3. It says that Athaliah reigned over Judah for six years. Now, you know, this is the book of Kings, right? First and second Kings. Well, did you know this, that there was a woman who ruled over Judah? She's the only queen who ever ruled over Judah. This is her, Athaliah, except you'll notice that the text never refers to her as a queen. You know why? Here's why. Because Athaliah was not a descendant of King David. 
He, she was not part of the royal family line of Judah. In other words, she had no right, no claim to the throne of Judah. She's a total usurper. She has no business ruling over Judah. Athaliah, we actually are told in chapter 8 of 2 Kings, Athaliah, you know who she is? She's the daughter of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. Athaliah was the daughter of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. Remember, King Ahab and Queen Jezebel, King Ahab was the wicked king of the northern kingdom of Israel. So what happened is that King Ahab's daughter married into the royal family of the southern kingdom of Judah. And now what's she doing? Well, by killing off all the heirs to the throne, she is trying to eliminate all of the descendants of King David. Let me say that again. She's trying to eliminate all the descendants of King David. Now, you might say, okay, cool. That's just what people did back then. Who cares? Well, here's the deal. This is really important, and here's why. Because in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God had made a promise to King David that from his family line would come an unbroken succession of kings, which would culminate in the coming of the Messiah, the Messiah. The Messiah was the promised Savior King, the Savior of the world, the one whom God promised ever since the beginning of time when sin came into the world here on earth, that God promised to send in order to save us from the, the curse of sin and death, in order to redeem us and rescue us from the oppression of our souls. The Messiah, God had said, would be a king, and he would come through the royal line of David. That's why when Jesus came, he was referred to as the son of David, the descendant of David. Why? Because people knew this promise from 2 Samuel that the Messiah would be the descendant of David and an heir to the throne of David. So understand what's at stake here as Athaliah is killing her children and grandchildren. If Athaliah succeeds in killing off all of the descendants of David, then what happens? It means that God's promise will come to nothing. God's promise to bring the Savior, the Messiah, through the family line of David, it means that promise is foiled, it's thwarted, it comes to nothing, it's ruined. It, it means this, if Athaliah succeeds in what she's trying to do, killing off all the descendants of David, it means that Christmas never happens. It means that Calvary never happens. It means Jesus is never born, and you and me are lost in our sins forever. So this is a pretty big deal here, guys. But understand this. This was not just a power-hungry grandmother killing uh, her grandchildren. There was something more to it, and that's this. These killings were inspired by evil itself, by Satan himself. Why? To thwart this plan of God to bring salvation to the world through the Son of David, Jesus Christ. Now, write this down and check it out later. Revelation chapter 12 Revelation chapter 12, particularly the first half of Revelation chapter 12. There in Revelation chapter 12, God paints this picture. He describes Israel as a woman who is pregnant with a child. That child is the Messiah. And it says that there is a great dragon. This dragon tried to do everything he could to prevent the child from being born. He tried to devour the child, it says. He did everything he could to try to stop the child from being born. So that child that Israel, as a woman, was pregnant with is the Messiah. The dragon is Satan. And what 
God's saying there is this. This is the history of the world. For the history of the world, the dragon, Satan, has been trying to thwart the plan of God to bring salvation to the world through Jesus. And, and we can see that as we look through history and as we look through the Bible. We see it, for example, in the book of Esther, where Satan inspired a man named Haman to rise up and try to commit an act of genocide and wipe out the entire nation of Israel. We can see it with King Herod at the birth of Jesus. Remember, King Herod Herod the Great sends out an edict to kill all the baby boys in the city of Bethlehem. Why? Because he's trying to kill the Messiah. It's Satan inspiring this in order to put an end to God's promise to bring about salvation. Why? Because this child who is to come, Jesus, Satan knows that he will be the one who will one day destroy him. And so, listen, Athaliah came very close to succeeding in her plan of wiping out God's plan of salvation and the, th bringing a Savior through the, the line of David. In fact, she came so close that for six years, for six years, the people of Judah, everybody in Judah believed that she actually had succeeded in doing it, that she actually had killed off all of David's descendants, and there wasn't a single one left. And I want you to just imagine for a second what it must have been like for those people during that time. Imagine how they must have felt for those six years when it seemed like God's promise had been thwarted and foiled and come to nothing. They, they not only lived under this murderous despot, right, this murderous usurper, but for six years everyone believed that this woman had succeeded in thwarting the plan and the promise of God to bring the Messiah through the family of David. Listen, this would have been a hopeless and a dark time for these people in Judah. But look at what it says in chapter 11, verse 2. It says, But Jehoshaphat, the daughter of King Joram, sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from among the king's sons who were being put to death. And she put him and his nurse in a bedroom, and they hid him from Athaliah so he would not be put to death. This woman, Jehoshaphat, how many of you know about her? I'll tell you this, guys. She's one of the greatest heroes in the Bible who doesn't get enough press as she deserves. Single-handedly, by rescuing this child, single-handedly, she preserves the promise of God and the plan of salvation. This child who she saved, Joash, he was only a year or maybe less than a year old when she saved him. And he was the heir to the throne of David. And by the way, that word heir in Hebrew is a beautiful term. It literally means uh, the seed of the kingdom. Isn't that beautiful? The word heir, it means the seed of the kingdom. That's what Joash was. It says in verse 3, Joash remained there for six years, hidden in the house of the Lord while Athaliah reigned. What does that mean that he was hidden in the house of the Lord? Well, one of the things that we find out here in the text and also in Second Chronicles, which also tells us the story of Joash, is this that Jehoshaphat, the woman who saved this baby, her husband was a man named Jehoiada. Now, Jehoiada was the high priest there in Jerusalem at this time. So her husband was Jehoiada. So she, they live, he lived at their house, and he grew up in the temple, serving alongside his adopted father, the high priest Jehoiada. You know, you think about Joash, and like Moses, he's saved as an infant from a murderous rampage, right? His life is rescued out of the jaws of death. Like the prophet Samuel, he grows up serving in the temple. So much promise, right? Look at what it says in verse 4. In the seventh year, Jehoiada, the high priest, 
he sent and brought the captains of the Karaites and of the guard and had them come to him in the house of the Lord. And he made a covenant with them and put them under oath in the house of the Lord, and he showed them the king's son. Much to everyone's surprise, they discover that there is still a rightful heir alive to the throne of David. And so it says in verses 5 through 8, there in chapter 11, that Jehoiada, the high priest, with the help of the soldiers, they take Joash, the seven-year-old boy, they bring him into the temple. And it says in verse 12, they placed a crown upon his head and they crowned him as king. They put a crown on his head and it says there in verse 12, they put, they gave him the testimony. What does that mean? Here's what it means. They gave him a copy of the scriptures for his own. Did you know that it says in Deuteronomy chapter 17, in the law of Moses, it says that all of the kings were to be given a copy of the scriptures for them to study and for them to learn. And, and that isn't something that always happened. But here with Joash, it happens. We see that they, they give him a copy of the scriptures in his hands. They give him a crown upon his head. It says then that he, that he was anointed with oil, and the people clapped their hands and said, Long live the king. Well, you can imagine that must have caused a lot of noise, a lot of commotion. And Athaliah, who's there in Jerusalem, she hears a bunch of noise coming out of the temple, and a bunch of people gathered. What's going on? So she goes over there. She peeks inside. And what does she see? She sees this boy, her own grandson, who has just been crowned as king. And it says there in verse 14 that when she saw it, she tore her clothes and shouted, treason, treason. In verse 15, the captain of the army captured Athaliah and put her to death. Well, that's not the end of the story. Look at what it says in verse 17. It says that Jehoiada, remember the high priest at this time, he made a covenant between the Lord and the king and people that they should be the Lord's people. They rededicated themselves to God. And it says this in verse 18, Then all the people of the land went to the house of Baal and tore it down. His altars and his images they broke into pieces. So under Jehoiada, the people of Judah have overthrown this terrible tyrant, and they have rededicated their lives to God. They, they also go and they tear down the altar to Baal, the temple of Baal that was built there in Jerusalem. Now remember, Athaliah's parents, who were they? King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. King Ahab is the king who introduced the worship of this pagan god Baal into the northern kingdom of Israel. This pagan god Baal who was worshipped by human sacrifices, by child sacrifices. And you remember that last week in chapter 10, we saw how Jehu, he destroyed the temple of Baal that was built in Samaria. Now, that's the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, our focus is on the southern kingdom, and we see that Athaliah, during her reign, she had built a temple to Baal in Jerusalem. Can you even imagine? There was a temple to Baal built in Jerusalem, and now Jehoiada leads the people. They go. They destroy the temple of Baal in Jerusalem, and it says in chapter 11, verse 20, that Jehoiada led the people to bring Joash into the royal temp or the royal palace, and they seated him on the throne of the kings. I'd say things are off to a pretty good start for Joash's reign as king, wouldn't you? In fact, I almost wonder, things with Joash were going so well, they were so promising, that I wonder if the people of Judah might have wondered if maybe, just maybe, this one, Joash, might be the one. 
you know, the, the long-awaited Messiah, the Savior King who would establish a kingdom of peace and justice forever. Here he is. He's a descendant of David. He's got the scriptures in his hands. He grew up in the temple. His life was saved out of the jaws of death. And it says there in chapter 11, verse 21, that Joash, sometimes, by the way, is spelled Jehoash. It's the same name, just different spellings, different ways of transliterating the, the Hebrew text. Joash, he's seven years old when he begins to reign, it says in chapter 12, verse 1, he reigned for 40 years. And verse 2 of chapter 12, it says, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all his days because Jehoiada the priest instructed him. It's all starting out so good. You know, you see this crowning of this boy, the promised one, right? The, the one who's the descendant of David. And it, it's almost messianic in nature. But I want you to remember this. Placing your hope in people or things will ultimately disappoint. That's our sentence for today, remember? People, placing your hope in people or things will ultimately disappoint. I want you to look at chapter 12, verse 2 again and, and read it with a little bit different eye. Look at it again. It says this, Jehoash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord because Jehoiada the priest instructed him. If you read in a different translation, it will put it this way. Here's another translation. It says, Joash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all the days or all the years that Jehoiada the priest instructed him. Understand what is being implied there. Understand what's being said. The reason Joash did well is because the high priest was mentoring him. And Joash did well only as long as the high priest was mentoring him, which means this, as soon as Jehoiada, the high priest, died, Joash stopped doing well. He no longer did well. Now, how do I know that that's true? I know it's true because his story is also told in 2 Chronicles chapter 24. And here's what it says in 2 Chronicles 24, that after Jehoiada, the high priest, died, Joash started hanging out with this other group of people. And that group of people influenced him. And, they, and under the influence of this other group of people, Joash abandoned the house of the Lord, and he served the Asherim and the idols. The Asherim were pagan gods. And it says that wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem for this guilt of theirs. Furthermore, in 2 Chronicles, what happens is after Joash turns away from the Lord and goes off into idolatry, God sends a prophet to him named Zechariah. And this prophet Zechariah comes to him and says to him, hey, Joash, you need to turn back to the Lord. It's not too late. Remember how you used to walk with God. You can come back and repent of what you're doing and come back to the Lord. And rather than repenting and turning back to the Lord, what did Joash do? He murdered that prophet Zechariah. And after he murdered the prophet Zechariah, we says that Joash's own servants killed him in his bed because they said, this guy is so wicked that he would be better off dead. Well, again, Joash did well during the time that Jehoiada was mentoring him. But as soon as Jehoiada died, Joash stopped doing well. And you know what this speaks to us about? This speaks to us about the power and the purpose of mentoring relationships, or as we call it a lot of times in Christian circles, discipleship. The power and the purpose of discipleship or mentoring relationships. You know, what is discipleship, right? It's when a, a more mature believer walks alongside you and encourages you in your relationship with God. They instruct you from the Word of God. Well, listen, in 
Joash's life, we can see the power of discipleship. By having godly influences in his life, in the form of Jehoiada, the high priest, Joash did well. But when that godly influence was taken away and other people became the primary voices that Joash was listening to, uh, he was shaped by their voices instead, away from the Lord and against the Lord. Listen, this is something that's really on my heart lately is this. No matter who you are today, there are so many voices right now that are trying to get your attention and to influence you. Those, those mobile devices you carry around in your pocket that we all carry around in our pockets, right? You know what they're designed for? They're designed for consuming content. And listen, as you consume that content, it is not neutral. Understand this. It's not neutral. You are being influenced. It is shaping you. That content is shaping the way you think. It's shaping the way that you view the world. It is shaping the way that you view your neighbors and think about the people around you. And as a pastor, I have to say this. This is one of my biggest concerns because we're in the discipleship business right here at church, right? We're in the formation, spiritual formation business. But listen, you come here for one hour a week to be shaped by the word of God and by worshiping with the people of God. But then you spend throughout the week multiple hours being influenced and shaped by so much other content. News, YouTube, right? Articles, memes that are constantly being pushed at you through your phone, through your devices, through the radio. And all of it is content. And that content is not neutral. It is affecting you. It is shaping you. And it is a form of discipleship. It is created by people who want to make you disciples of their beliefs and their attitudes. And what concerns me is that many people today are being discipled more by influencers and political pundits than they are by the word of God and by the people of God. And I think this is something we really need to be aware of and wise about and, and cognitive about. I want to encourage you. Listen, discipleship is powerful. Look at the, the force of discipleship in Joash's life. Discipleship is powerful, so be wise and be intentional because you are being discipled, whether you realize it or not. So be intentional about what content you are consuming, which voices you are filling your ears with and your mind with. Be intentional about saying, I am going to fill my ears and my mind with the voice and with the words of God. And I want to be influenced by the thoughts of God. Here at Whitefields, you know, we are, we are committed to that, to helping you find and develop good discipleship relationships. And, and, you know, the Christian life is not something for you to do on your own. And we want to help you with that. We want to help you get connected with a group or a team where you can build relationships with other believers and spur each other on to love and good works. We have online groups as well. For those of you who are watching online, we want to help you get connected. But understand, like Joash, you are being discipled all the time. It's just a question of by whom and towards what end. So I want to encourage you, be wise about it and be intentional about it. Now listen, not only do we see the power of discipleship, we also see the purpose of discipleship. The purpose of discipleship is not to create a dependence spiritually, where one person needs another person so that they can 
they can walk with God. Rather, the, the goal, the purpose of discipleship is to prepare someone to have a relationship with God where they can walk on their own. And what we see here with Joash is this. It seems that his faith was dependent on Jehoiada, the high priest, encouraging him in the ways of the Lord. Because as soon as Jehoiada is gone, Joash doesn't have a faith of his own that he's able to walk in and go on his own. And it's worth asking yourself this question. Listen, if you're a person who has spiritual mentors in your life, I want you to ask yourself this. If those spiritual mentors were taken out of the picture, would you still walk with the Lord? You know, some of you young people, youth and kids, I want to ask you directly to think about this. When you move out on your own, are you going to have a relationship with God for yourself? Are you still going to walk with him? Are you still going to seek him when there's no one telling you to read your Bible, when there's no one shaking you out of bed to get to church on time, when there's no one telling you to get in your car and go to youth group? You know, for those of you on the other side, who are in the mentoring position in somebody else's life. I want to ask you questions as well. Are you equipping them so that when you're not around, they will walk with God and seek him on their own? If not, then be praying for and working towards and aiming in that direction. But listen, you might look at this story and you might say, well, it just seems like Joash is kind of a weak person and Jehoiada is the real hero of the story. But wait a second. In chapter 12, we see some very severe cracks in Jehoiada's character as well. I want to point that out. Look at what it says in chapter 3, or chapter 12, verse 3. It says, Nevertheless, the high places were not taken away. The people continue to sacrifice and make offerings on the high places. Listen, the high places were pagan altars, which were built on the hills, usually outside of town. And so even though Jehoiada led the people to rally and tear down the temple of Baal that was built by Athaliah, he did not rally the people to tear down the high places, the pagan altars in the hills. Listen, if Jehoiada was Joash's mentor, then shouldn't Jehoiada have insisted that Joash tear these things down? And if Jehoiada could rally the people to tear down the temple of Baal, couldn't he also rally the people to tear down the high places? And yet he didn't. He stopped short. He fell short of what God had asked. Another flaw we see in Jehoiada's character is found in uh, chapter 12, verses 4 through 16. Just take a look at it there in your Bible, and I'll, I'll kind of walk you through the text and explain what's going on. Here in verses 4 through 16 of chapter 12, we read that Joash led a campaign to repair and refurbish the temple. Now, that was a good thing. It had been several generations since Solomon built the temple, and by now it was in need of some repairs and some refurbishing. Well, in verses 4 through 5, we read about how this project of, of fixing up the temple was to be funded. And here's how. The law of Moses had actually dictated that this is something that was supposed to regularly take place. And here's how it was to take place. Whenever, this, whenever there was a census taken, the people were to make donations to the temple. So if you were counted in the census, then you were to make a donation to the temple for the upkeep and the operation of the temple. Now, the priests were in charge of collecting that money and using it for the maintenance of the temple. 
Furthermore, it says here, they invited people to make additional contributions. It says in verse 4, as their hearts prompted them for the ministry of the house of the Lord. Now, this was a good thing. Again, remember, God told the people that this, in the law of Moses, this is something they were supposed to regularly do, to, to have regular contributions to the operation and the maintenance of the place of worship, the house of God, with both regular donations and sometimes special donations. You know, I, I'm just thinking about this from an administrative perspective being here. This week I was here when the, uh, the paper guy came and he dropped off a big supply of toilet paper. And I saw the invoice, right? I, I saw the invoice that came in for the light bulbs. And, and I get it, right? This is just a fact. The functioning of the local church depends on the generosity and the giving of the people of God. It's not going to come from anywhere else. But look at what it says in chapter 12, verse 6. By the 23rd year of King Jehoash, the priests had made no repairs on the house. So understand what happens. Several years have gone by. Joash has said, we're going to fix up the king. We're going to fix up the temple, just like God's word tells us to. And the people are making donations and giving money, but zero improvements have been made to the house of God. And Joash realizes this. And in verse 7, he calls together the priests and he scolds them. Why did he scold them? Here's why. Because the priests, including Jehoiada, had been mishandling the money that had been dedicated to the refurbishing and the operation of the temple. In fact, it was worse than just mishandling. We read there in the text that they were essentially pocketing the money that was given to the temple to fix up the temple. They were pocketing it for themselves. It says in verse 16 that the priests received a regular salary. The, the law of Moses dictated that the priests received a regular salary based on their normal duties and the offerings of, of offerings. But now, understand this, in addition to their salaries, they're getting all this extra money, which is supposed to be for fixing up the temple, and they're just keeping it and putting it in their own pockets. So in verse 9, after being scolded by Joash, here's what happens. Jehoiada, the high priest, he makes a wooden offering box, and he sets it outside the temple. And essentially what they're doing is they're setting up uh, some good protocols, some good safeguards, some good accountability to make sure that, that when people give money, it gets where it's supposed to go and, and nobody ends up taking it. And that's a good thing. We have similar protocols and safeguards and accountability here in the way that we handle money for the very same reason. But here's the point. As great of a person as Jehoiada was, he wasn't perfect. He had some serious flaws. He made mistakes, as we all do. And that's exactly the point. Placing your hope in people or things will ultimately disappoint. People who place their hope in Joash to be the savior of the nation, they were sorely disappointed. People who place their hope in Jehoiada to be the guiding light and the moral compass for the nation, they were also disappointed. And listen, the same is true of you in your life. If you place your hope in people or things, you will always ultimately be disappointed. And here's why. Because everything in this world is flawed and has an expiration date. It's flawed and has an expiration date. Listen, even if you find the greatest person in the world, the fact is that one day there will come a day when they will be taken away from you, their life will end, and you will be disappointed. There are a lot of things that I see as we look around. We see people putting their hope in a lot of things. They're putting their hope in political leaders, 
putting their hope in the right legislation, putting their hope in experiences or accomplishments or certain relationships. And we tend to look at these things in our world and they become these functional saviors for us where we say, if I just had that, if we just had that, if our society just had that, then we would be okay. Then it would fix what is wrong. And then it would make what is wrong right. But listen, anytime you look to anything in this world to be your savior, whether it's a, a system or a person or a thing, you will always be disappointed. And here's why, as we go on to the end of our sentence. Placing your hope in people or things will ultimately disappoint. But the hope of the gospel is the promise of a kingdom which will satisfy the deepest longing of your soul. The people of Judah looked to Joash and this new regime to be their savior. Joash looked to Jehoiada to be his savior, but they both fell short. And I'll tell you this, no matter what it is that you're looking to, maybe you're looking to a spouse to be the one to fulfill you, to fill up what is lacking within you. Maybe you're looking to a friend or a friendship to fill up what is lacking inside of you, or sometimes to a child or to your career or whatever it might be to fill up what is lacking inside you, to fix what is broken in you. It will always fall short. And yet there is one, the Bible says, who, if you place your hope in him, you will never be put to shame. The son of David, the king of kings, not Joash, but Joash's descendant, Jesus. Whereas all others fell short, he lived a perfect life. Whereas all others fall short, he did everything that God called him to do, which was giving his life as a ransom for yours, to take the penalty for your sin, so that you could receive forgiveness and redemption, grace and mercy. And not only that, but he rose from the grave, defeating death. And this is why Hebrews says this, therefore he is able to save completely those of us who draw near to God through him, since he, has all, since he always lives to make intercession for us. He did all of this in order to bring us into his kingdom, his kingdom that is to come, in which we will have the deepest longings of our souls fully satisfied forever. And you know why that is? Because ultimately, all of your desires, all of your desires, they find their fulfillment in him. You know what will make heaven heavenly? You know what will make heaven great? It's not going to be that there are streets of gold and mansions to live in. You know what will make heaven heaven? is that God will be there. That is what will make heaven, heaven. See, what you are seeking ultimately in all of your pursuits, it is found in him. And the good news of the gospel is that God has made a way for you through Jesus to spend eternity with him. He is the savior that you need. He is the one that your soul ultimately longs for. And he will be what makes heaven heavenly because he will be there and you can be with him. And because of what Jesus has done for you, you get to have a relationship with God here and now. You might call it this. You get to have a relationship with God here and now. It's like the seed of the kingdom which is to come, the seed of the kingdom which one day you will experience in fullness forever. And when you understand that, you know what it does? It sets you free. It sets you free from putting unrealistic expectations upon people who are never going to be able to meet those expectations. It sets them free from you putting expectations on them which are a crushing burden which they cannot meet. 
right? It sets you free from looking to things like your career, to, to your family, which can never meet the desire, that can never fulfill what is lacking within you. Instead, it puts your focus on the Lord and the kingdom which is to come. And when you do that, you know what it does? It helps you focus on God's mission and purpose for your life here and now, how he wants to use you in your life to serve others by sharing his love and his truth with them. So friends, may we put our hope in Jesus today, and may we live in the hope of that kingdom which is to come because of what he accomplished for us. Would you please stand with me? You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.